0: Welcome to the Healthy Beast. Today I'm joined by Kelda Wood, who is the first para rower to row solo across the Atlantic. She's also the founder of the charity Climbing Out, which runs activity programmes for people who've suffered illness or trauma. Kelda, welcome.
1: Hi, good to see you, Richard.
0: Now, I've been reading a lot about your story. You first were interested in horses, right? So you were going to be an Olympic rider of some kind. Was that right?
1: That was the dream, yes. Um, you know, from a very young age, it had been my absolute dream, and all I could think about was riding horses and representing my country and riding at the Olympics. I, I wasn't from a horsey family or a wealthy family, so that was kind of a slight complication because I didn't actually own a horse until I was sixteen. But yeah, my whole my whole world was around that dream.
0: How do you go about getting into it if you're not from a, from a horsey family with
1: um that that's a really great question um I guess I I rode at Michael riding school I used to hang around there all day just doing whatever I could um my, my parents were very different from me they were very academic very musical um tried to get me to be a a normal child, um, sent me to Girl Guides. But unfortunately for them, the guide leader was a policewoman on horseback um, who had her own horse. So I got talking to her and she said I could go and help her with that horse. Um, and then it was quite funny in that they actually saw that I was going to mess up my GCSEs because I was spending all my time hanging around at the stables. So they brought a bit of bribery in and said that if I got nine A's, they would buy me my first horse um and that for every a i didn't get i had to put 50 pounds towards the horse um so (laughs) yeah that was kind of how it all started um and i'd actually managed to save up 750 pounds i got one a um but to be fair to my parents they stayed true to their words and and i got my first horse but again anyone who knows anything about horses 750 pounds isn't going to buy your horse that will take you to the Olympics, it, you know, so it was a long old journey in spending a lot of time. Um, I, I bought a horse that was um, unbroken, which means I'd never been ridden before. Um, and it was the only way I could potentially buy a horse that might have um the potential to do what I wanted to do with the money I had um and spent a long time spent the next four years you know dedicating every waking hour to, to training him and me to, to be the partnership um that that I dreamt we could be so <laughs> you, how... you you know there's a buck coming here don't
0: you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so it... so so you had this kind of not quite seaside pony kind of thing but seaside donkey whatever I'm thinking but you got a Half decent horse.
1: Yeah, well, I he was a decent horse. Um, like I say, the only horse I could afford with the money that I had was, was unbroken, and um, which means he'd never been ridden. He was 17-2, which means he was huge. Um and he was a thoroughbred, um, which again means that they're, they're pretty feisty. Um, but we did look, we we um I took him through the levels. Um, we really looked like we had a lot of potential. Um and then one day I was out exercising. And there was a plastic bag in the hedge um, and my horse shied at that plastic bag out into the middle of the road. And unfortunately, there was a a lorry coming past us too fast to stop Um, and he hit us and and my horse was killed. Um, and that was probably one of the first setbacks that that really kind of I guess started on my whole journey because coming to terms with with losing that horse and the fact that I couldn't then just go and buy another one because I didn't have that kind of money um, was was quite a difficult time um but it all takes you somewhere and it, you know I took a bit of a change of direction got into racing with the horses instead
0: so, sorry to interrupt you so you were you weren't injured in that accident. And um, the... I
1: was y- yes um I uh broke my right leg and twisted my spinal column and and had a few other bumps and bruises but considering I would just been hit by a articulated lorry um I escaped much better than the horse did. You must
0: so so I've been talking to you, you must care a lot about the horse the fact that you mentioned the horse died but didn't even mention all these horrible injuries that you got in the accident.
1: Yeah, I guess For me, the injuries could be overcome. You know, that was just a matter of a period of time while things, the broken things mended and then you could get back to normal. Actually losing the horse was more significant because that was the end of a dream you know and that was my Olympic dream I, I thought had ended at, at that point so mentally that was probably a bigger challenge than the physical recovery.
0: Okay so that was your first big setback so but did you get the dream back on track after that?
1: So I took a little bit of time out um, I was doing a degree at the time so I, I finished my degree went travelling for a bit, got back into horses and then came back, managed to get another horse, but focused more on, on racing than than eventing. So I thought the Olympic dream was over, but I still had new goals with, with racing and training and, and still kind of achieving things through, through that. Unfortunately, then my next big setback happened and, and that was when I had the leg injury that was actually going to change the rest of my life. And that was probably a, an even bigger moment in in my whole sort of life journey to to kind of use a melodramatic phrase you can call
0: it your life journey if you want
1: (laughs) that sounds sounds very big doesn't it
0: (laughs) My my journey
1: my journey yes
0: (laughs) okay so I'm I'm, I'm making flippant comments you're talking about a serious injury so it happened in a slightly unusual way you were telling me before so you, you didn't fall or
1: no so again slightly ironic that you have all these crazy falls you know jump racing is a dangerous sport so I'd had quite a lot of bad falls and bad injuries and but yeah this one morning I was haying the horses early in the morning and a bale of haylage fell off the top of of The stack of of hay so it was a big bale it weighs about a ton and landed on top of me crushed me underneath and and caused a compound fracture and dislocation um to my left ankle and it was more (laughs) without getting too gruesome but my my left foot was on right angles to my leg and then because my foot wasn't there anymore the weight of the bale shattered the bottom of my leg so I'm, i'm
0: all right yeah
1: yeah yeah it's all fine okay yeah. <laughs> I, I kind of the reason why I describe it is not to try and be dramatic and gruesome but I think when you say oh compound fracture and dislocation it almost sounds kind of very insignificant almost like oh yeah it was a bit yes. of an inconvenience
0: yeah these but, are doctor's words because because uh, hmm. having ha- having had one or two of my own compound fracture uh, that's when it comes out right that's yes. when it that's when yes. it. they because I think people think compound fracture is lots of breaks, but compound is when it comes out the skin, isn't it? If I've, yes. if I've remembered correctly from from yeah. all the groggy conversations I had in hospital, that's when bits come out. So that's that's, yes. that's that yeah. is pretty horrific. So it, it, you have to be careful life. discussing these things. And and also yeah. when it's happened to you, I don't know how it was for you, but I'm fine talking about these things now. But afterwards, I was very afterwards I was very squeamish about it. So I don't know how. You yeah, at, is, I'm actually,
1: so- I'm, I'm kind of really cool about it. It happened, you know, it was what it was, and it has caused a lot of challenges, but also it led me to end up in a better place than I think I was before the accident. So I'm kind of really cool. It, it is what it is, and and yeah, I'll tell you anything you want about it. So <laughs> How
0: long ago did it happen? Now
1: that was 2002. So, 2002. Um, yeah, 18 years ago now. So it's been a long. Time. So you were um, what
0: age then? What age were you? Then? I
1: was about twenty-six then. I lose track of okay. things, I think. Yeah. Um I might be doing myself a, a favour when I say shave that, a few, I think it. We will sh- shave a few
0: years <laughs> off if you want. Yeah, you? <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> <You're> older, nothing <laughs> wrong with that. Um,
1: okay, so you had yeah.
0: so, so you had this injury, when you was it you, you knocked out in there?
1: No, no, never the, knocked out. I mean a- again, lucky because the, the bail actually landed on the top of my head. It didn't touch my leg. It landed on Landed on the top of my head and compressed everything. So that was how the, the fracture and dislocation actually happened. But at the time, they thought I broke my neck. So I was very lucky to be alive and to be walking, you know. But they—I mean, nearly lost my leg. I didn't. I sometimes say it might have been easier if I had, because one of the challenges that I found in my recovery was that people couldn't see my injury. So. My whole life had revolved around sport, you know, sport was who I was, it was my identity. And all of a sudden, I was left unable to run. You know, I couldn't run anymore. But you couldn't see that. To so look at me, if I'd had a prosthetic, you know, people would have understood why I couldn't run. But as it was, I looked completely normal. So I felt people were making a judgment that I was being lazy, that I was being an that I was being unmotivated which was everything that I wasn't but because it's that unseen injury isn't it which really ties in with the whole mental health side of things Um, that that was a much bigger deal for me than the actual injury itself Um, and I guess it's something that's made me very passionate about the work I do now is that because whether it be bullying or PTSD or abuse or, or whatever kind of trauma, people can't see it. Um, and that's one of the hardest things to come to terms with and, and manage in my experience.
0: I think for sure, there is a problem. People like to see simple things they can understand, so yeah, you see someone who's lost a leg, you see mm. someone who's broken a leg and it's in plaster. you understand but once the once the sort of healing's done and you look quote unquote normal, yes, it can be yeah it can be difficult for people. You said that the the emotional trauma was the the worst part of it, if I heard you correctly, but I mean, mm. you must have had great physical suffering. Do you have full memory of everything afterwards?
1: yeah, completely.
0: Because I can't imagine yeah. the the the, the, tr- the trauma of that must be terrible, but also, you know, the, the pain levels, I guess.
1: I mean, it was, it was horrifically painful and I, I can remember that, but um, I guess it's a bit like childbirth. I've never had children, so I don't know. Um, but you, you know, you, you can forget pain. You can pain lasts while it's happening, but then, you know, you, you recover and, and you can, over the, the the pain um I think what I was left with was a leg that didn't work anymore and I didn't know who I was anymore in that I couldn't play sport um I could still ride so it, you know that was the one great thing I could still get on a horse because obviously I was kind of non-weight bearing when you're you're sat on a horse still um I maybe wasn't it, you know I I ended up with no mobility in my left ankle at all so I I can't move my left ankle joint so I I maybe wasn't as pretty on a horse and by that I mean stylish kind of thing um, but I could still get on and ride Um, but I think the biggest thing for me was the fact that I lost my sport and it was that what I thought other people were thinking that that had the big impact on me and I just sort of I got stuck there for the best part of 10 years where I just got on. Um, I still rode. I still did my job, but I wasn't accepting of who I was with my injury. Um, I kept on trying to do all the things I'd done before my injury. And when I failed, I started to think that I was a failure and I couldn't accept that actually I couldn't do these things because of my injury um and it wasn't until I went and climbed I climbed Kilimanjaro in 2010 so that was eight years after the injury and that was what I always say was the start of my recovery because that was the start of me coming to terms with, with my injury I didn't get to the final point point until 2000 until 2017 so it was still a a long journey um but that was that was the start of it. So, yeah. So the
0: final point: this is of your. This is not a physical journey of your mm. of your recovery. Is that what you're talking about?
1: Mm. Like? Yes. Yeah. My acceptance
0: of acceptance.
1: who okay. I was, and I I often say with anyone who's been through any kind of trauma, um, is that actually accepting it you, until you accept things, it's very difficult to move forwards. So I spent a long time not accepting my injury and fighting it almost and it was never going to change you know it was what it was there was there is no improvement that can happen with my leg it it is how it is so I needed to accept that but that can't be done with a with a tablet or a prescription you have to find that yourself Um, and so that was why it it led to a very interesting, crazy few years um, that were actually amazing. But it led me to the point that I did. I finally accepted it in 2017. And since then, um, it's actually been the best thing that's ever happened to me. And and I'm in a better place than I've ever been, which is great.
0: I've heard people say this before when they've had terrible things happen. And I think a lot of people find it hard to accept to say, oh, this is the best thing that's happened to me, because you think, well, well, how can it yeah. be? But I think, are you saying it sort of quickly took you to a greater understanding of, you know, what your life's really about?
1: Yeah, I think maybe not quickly, because it, it was a very long process, and I, I learned a huge amount along the way. But I think you're right in what you say as far as that realising what's really important in life um, so you know I spent a long time thinking that a gold medal was the only thing that was going to define success for me and it you know kind of bizarrely enough I ended up on the um GB Paracanoe squad so I was aiming for the Paralympics in 2016 um, in sprint kayaking so so in a boat not on a horse at all um, and then I just missed out on selection and I and I saw that whole part of of my journey as a failure but actually it led on to something else that then led on to finding that acceptance so and I realized that it wasn't about the gold medal it was about being the person I wanted to be living my life in the way I wanted to live it And actually achieving things not necessarily just through being the first over a line and and standing on the top of the podium. And that was that was huge. That was massive.
0: So it's not about being the first to do things, but it still must have been quite satisfying to have achieved that big row of yours. So what was it? You were the first person... First para rower to row unaided—is that it? Is that how it works? No, no,
1: to solo row. To, so to solo um, row. Sorry. Yes. So there've been other para rowers that had had rowed as part of um, a crew, but I was the first person to do it solo. So that's sort of on your own, unsupported. Off you go. <laughs> well,
0: how long did it? How long did it take? How long are you in the boat?
1: Seventy-six days.
0: Seventy-six days.
1: Yes. Yes a long time
0: <laughs> so any any fresh traumas from that experience or was it all were you all very zen and focused
1: oh god no um <laughs> it was I mean I had no burning desire to row an ocean you, you know mountains are my thing that that's what I love to do um and yeah and, I, that, and oh, yeah well the whole point so I was I was lucky enough after I failed to get to Rio I was lucky enough to be part of a team an adaptive team, so a disabled team, climbing Aconcagua, which is the highest mountain in in South America. Um, And when I did that, everyone said, with a leg like mine, it's just not possible. You you know, she's not going to get to the top. Um, I adapted a bit of a saying then, which was, um, it's not about saying I can't, it's about saying how can I? So I looked at Aconcagua, and I went, how can I make it possible to climb this mountain with a leg like mine? And we, we tried all sorts of different things. And eventually, I came up with some crazy, funky crutches um, that were amazing, and actually took my leg out of the equation. And it was when I summited, on on the 19th of January 2017 um, not that I remember the day at all (laughs) um, that I did find that acceptance and because I've been looking for it for so long I felt really privileged to have found that acceptance but I knew that I wanted to do something even bigger first up to challenge myself but secondly to try and motivate and inspire other people that were going through trauma to go on their own journey you know because I fully believe that we can't find the answers for people people have to find their own answers but what we can do is try and support encourage them to go on the journey to, to find those answers so As I was walking down the mountain after summiting, I'm thinking, "What can I do? What can I do? What can I do that's proper out there?" And I'd heard about this Atlantic row and thought that's something that I wouldn't really enjoy doing. So maybe that's that's the sort of thing I should do. And then I I actually had said, but I couldn't imagine in a million years ever doing it as a solo. Like, how would that even be possible? you know I know nothing about the ocean nothing about rowing like where would you even start and and then I woke up one morning and just went that's why I've got to do it that's why I've got to do it the fact that I don't know how this is even going to be possible
0: so wait can I just interrupt you one second so hang on so you've you've climbed a mountain they told you you couldn't climb using crutches you've had to fashion yourself and literally on the way down the mountain you've thought of a horrible thing you don't want to do and then decided to do it?
1: <laughs> yeah, which kind of okay, sounds a bit good. crazy when you as put it like I'm, that. As
0: long as I... <laughs> I just wanted to make yeah. sure I was getting
1: it right. I mean, I, I wasn't 100% certain at that point that the Atlantic was the thing. I'd heard about the Atlantic and I... Coming down, I was like, I need to do something. I need to do something. It needs to be big. It needs to be gnarly. And then I looked at a few things and, and then the reason why I chose a solo row was because I didn't want to do it. And again, I know that sounds like a crazy thing to say, but the whole point in the row was to inspire and motivate. So I was rowing for a different person each day. Um, Each person I was rowing for had been through their own trauma and they'd all written and shared their own stories. So each day we were sharing their stories and the stories of those people I was rowing for were, were mind-blowing. You know, from cancer to abuse to being involved in the Manchester Arena bombing. Um, and all of those people, had they had no choice. They had no cho- choice. They didn't want to be diagnosed with cancer. They didn't want to be in the arena that night of the bombing. But they were. And they just had to learn to deal with it and cope with it and get through it and if i'd gone and done something that i was going to enjoy and i was going to want to do that was kind of been fairly hypocritical you know it needed to be something that felt completely overwhelming completely daunting and not something that i particularly wanted to do it, it you know um the thought of of spending you know 10 to 12 months out at sea on my own I really like people I love people so you know as much as I'm kind of good with my own company I love talking So like three months with no one to talk to was my worst nightmare you know so yeah
0: you must have thought when you got back from the mountain you must have thought oh it was just the just the altitude talking did you want to change your mind and pull out (laughs)
1: Um, I think I actually felt incredibly motivated about the whole thing until about two weeks beforehand and then two weeks before the start of the row I kind of went oh no (laughs) I've actually got to do this and it was sort of very easy it took two years of planning and preparation and it was very easy for those two years to kind of talk the talk and then when it came to actually walking the walk I was like oh my word, I've actually got to do this. And that was when it hit me. Um, and I would have done anything to have got out of it at that point, you know, and I was really hoping that there'll be a problem with the boat or a problem with the weather or a problem with me or something that would meant mean I'd had an excuse not to start. But unfortunately, it didn't happen. So <laughs> Before I knew it, I was rowing out of La Gomera and I was like, here we go. (laughs) No backing out now. So, yeah, that was that was an interesting moment.
0: (laughs) So what before that, what was the longest you'd spent on your own in a boat? None. None. (laughs)
1: Um, I, oh let's done, just see how
0: this goes, shall we?
1: It, it, well, no, it, I wasn't I wasn't that flippant about it. I mean, I hadn't done any rowing, I hadn't done any sailing before it started, but I trained hard for two years, you know. Um, but you can't replicate the Atlantic. Um, so a lot of the rowing I did was UK coastal rowing, and you can't do that on your own because of the danger of being blown onto land. So if you're struggling to fight the wind, um in the middle of the Atlantic that's okay because you're not going to hit anything but UK coastal you can't afford to be blown you know onto rocks onto land whatever it is so I'd done one 24 hour row on my own where I'd just been dropping an anchor and roaming out a little bit and then coming back in and dropping an anchor but I hadn't actually spent any significant time on my own um although I'd done a lot of training in the boat um but you 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 know mentally you prepare yourself well kind of mentally you do but also it's a bit let's just see what happens (laughs) as in from the from the from the solitude side of things you know I thought I was going to be fine with it I realized on day two I really wasn't Day two, so
0: day day one, okay, day two, things are
1: Day getting two. Bad. Day two, I was like, what have I done? What have I done? And what's the
0: kind of what's the kind of setup there? What you what have you got going on in this little boat? The luxuries, you know?
1: The luxuries is none. Um, I mean you you've got a cabin that's sort of the size of a one man tent, um, okay. and you've got your rowing seat and then you've got another little cabin at the other end of the boat which is for storage and things. So I mean as far as toilet facilities go, um it's a bucket. Oh. Um you, you know showering it didn't happen for three months, um, which is never a good situation to be in. Food is freeze-dried food, um, and you've got a little jet boil, so you're just reheating the water. Um, all of that I could cope with. I was fine with all of that. The solitude, I really, really struggled with, really struggled with. Um, And at the beginning, the thought of having another 10 to 12 weeks ahead of me, 3,000 miles before I was going to see anyone, um, that that at the beginning felt hugely overwhelming um, and kind of impossible, you know.
0: I just got I can't imagine I got I got a little bit scared earlier. I was just listening to you a bit when you're talking about being off the off the coast of England and I was thinking of the deep cold water and I even sitting at home in my son's bedroom I was a bit like, "Oh, so I can't imagine <laughs> heading off out to sea on my own."
1: Yeah, I mean that side I was absolutely fine with. Um for whatever reason, I think maybe subconsciously I always kidded myself that land was just over, over the horizon. Um but it was, I mean, it was so interesting because, I mean, at the beginning, I was actually trying to work out how I could break a bone so that I would have to be rescued um, because I knew I didn't, I had too much pride to quit, but I didn't, I honestly didn't think I could keep going for for another 10 to 12 weeks. Um, luckily, I wasn't brave enough to do that either. Um, and so I just kind of kept rowing and it was on day 12, that I started to re- find a coping strategy. And that was very much about just taking one day at a time. So instead of thinking about 3000 miles in the next 10 weeks, I've just could be, okay, I created a routine. And I would just follow that routine with absolute discipline. And just one day at a time. And, you know, if I can row, depending on weather conditions, 20 miles tomorrow, that means I'm 20 miles closer. If weather conditions were good, right, I'm going to try and get 40 miles today. And I just wouldn't think beyond the day I was doing at that time. And that was the way I kept going. It was just one day at a time.
0: And how much of the day are you rowing and how much of the day are you doing other stuff?
1: Um, so I was rowing for about 16 hours. A day I would I would start about 5 30 in the morning I would row till 11 30 at night um and then I would have four 30 minute breaks through the day oh,
0: Love um, luxury it's fine <laughs> four 30 minute breaks
1: <laughs> do, do you know what that was okay because if you weren't rowing you weren't getting any closer to home and all I wanted to do was to get to blooming Land, so I actually found that bit very easy um, because I kept on saying to myself I can't do this I can't do this like I need people I, I would have sort of two little voices in my head I used to call them K1 and K2 and and K1 would be going I can't do this I can't do this and then K2 would go okay so you know what what do you need like if you if you want to get to people how are you going to do that well I've, I've got to get to Antigua I've got to get to land okay what's the best way to do that it's well row so yeah okay cool so crack on and get rowing so you know my motivation for rowing was actually very high um it was the days when you were forced to sit in your cabin because you're in a storm um you know you're getting blown backwards they were the harder days rather than the physical days of rowing
0: I can't imagine. So you're so there are times when you're not you can't row because of the conditions. So you're you're zipped up in there and you're drifting back to where you yeah. came from. Oh, yeah, horrible.
1: I mean, you you have a sea anchor that you can put out. So if you're the if the headwinds and you're getting being blown backwards at too fast a rate, you can put a sea anchor out. But that's like a great big parachute that you drop into the water. And again, on your own, that's quite a difficult thing to put out and bring in. Um, So you would only put that out if you were massively getting blown backwards. Um, A lot of the time, so I was going east to west, a lot of the time you might still be going west, but you might be going northeast or south, uh, sorry, northwest or um, southwest. So you were doing quite a lot of zigzagging uh, across the Atlantic. So it's actually 2,700 miles. I actually rode 3,543 miles together because of all the zigzagging that i did
0: And <laughs> you communicating with people during this time
1: uh you've got a sat phone um so yeah you you can speak to people and get hold of people i i did it as little as possible because again if i'm sat on the phone i'm not rowing um, and actually that's not getting me any closer to to home so I would ring each day to get my weather reports and just check in and you know Christmas day I I rang my mother and things like that um but otherwise I tried to keep the phone calls to a minimum.
0: So but you said each day you were doing it for a different person Mm. would that be something you kind of would you a focus for that day so you think about this person think about their story and that will kind of push you on motivate you?
1: Very much so yeah so um I'd We'd, we'd worked all of that out we'd got all the the young people and the stories all sorted before I went so I actually had a list up in my cabin of who I was rowing for each day and of course I'd read all their stories and I knew all their stories and some days when I was reeling, feeling really sorry for myself and you know that this was the worst thing ever and I would actually go hang on a minute, Kel you know, you're in the middle of the Atlantic, you've got this incredible opportunity, it might be tough, but it's an incredible experience. And you're sitting here thinking that that life's not great when actually think about who you're rowing for, and that they were stuck in hospital having chemotherapy for six months or having a kidney transplant, or, you know, um, recovering from losing a leg or whatever it might be and, and just man up you know (laughs) Um, but it was kind of interesting because I got quite a lot of messages while I was out there from the people that I was rowing for and it was a real two-way thing so I was being very inspired by them to keep going but equally they were saying that they were being very inspired by me being out there because they might be having a bad day and they would go come on like Kelda's out in the middle of the Atlantic she's got no company she's got no toilet she's got no television you know I'm sitting here in the warm and dry with food watching the telly you can cope with this so it was a real team effort as much as it was a solo row the objective of it was a real team effort and you know when I got to Antigua the first thing I said when I stepped on land was we did it and that was what it felt like. It, it hadn't been me. I was just a very small part in the whole picture. And my bit of that picture was doing the rowing. But actually, everyone played a part in, in it being a success. Um, and yeah, it was a very, very special moment.
0: Was it after that? Was it just brilliant to get home or did did part of you kind of, I don't know, Missed the, I, I, it's hard to say missed being at sea, but you can imagine if that's all you've been used to. For what do you say? 72 yeah. days it was.
1: 76, yeah. 76 so, days. Yeah. Uh, those four days counted, I can tell you. Yeah,
0: sorry. <laughs> 72, nothing. <laughs> Easy. Um, so 76, 76 days. Yeah, and, and yeah. So when you're back home and you've got all your, you know, the, the comfort, everything going you, on,
1: I, I think you miss the simplicity of life. Um, You know, out there, you didn't have to worry about emails and phone calls and meetings and, you know, all those going shopping and just the day-to-day hassles of life. So as much as um, I couldn't believe I was saying it, yeah, when I did come back, there was part of me, life was so straightforward. It just revolved around eating, sleeping and rowing. And that was it but, you know there was nothing else to think about so um as much as I wouldn't do it again um yes there was a very small part of me that that missed it once I came back
0: <laughs> well maybe maybe we could we could all learn something from that because there are there are lots of silly everyday hassles that most of us could do without and can bring you down if you let them you know constant mm. faff of all the things we have to do that we probably shouldn't have to do but you're nice in the atlantic in a small boat yeah what else can you worry about
1: yes yeah and and i it, it's quite interesting i was talking to someone recently and they said you know how did you apply all your learnings from all the years before the atlantic to your atlantic row and i said i didn't they all went out the window. Everything went out the window. But the learnings from the Atlantic, I've massively applied to life since. Um, and I think the learnings from, you know, things being out of your control. And it, I used to get so paranoid about the boat capsizing. Um, and what if, what if, what if the boat capsizes? You know, what if my water maker breaks? What if... Um, You know i get attacked by a shark and then you will kind of go but it might not happen and and you're wasting all this energy on worrying about the what ifs you know if you're putting all that energy into rowing how much further would you get in a day and i've used that a lot since i've come back when you do spend all this energy worrying about what ifs but you don't actually know if those what ifs are, are going to happen so and there's been a lot of learnings like that um, that I really think I've taken from that that Rome
0: yeah I think well, I think that's that's certainly we could all learn from worrying worrying about the what ifs you said all that because yeah constantly what if this went wrong what if this went wrong well I mean you want to have taken the necessary steps to protect yourself against various what ifs but you, yeah well, as you said you um, don't want to spend energy on worrying about them when you've got something else to do. All right, most of us might not have to keep rowing to get to Antigua, but we've all got stuff we've got to be getting on with, haven't we? Yeah, yeah, Everything and, more and even productive than worrying.
1: It, it, right. You know what's more relevant than than COVID at the minute? You know how much how much time have we all spent worrying about whether we go into lockdown again? You know whether this happens, whether that happens. But I've really used what I learned out on the Atlantic. Help cope with COVID um, because it was kind of like, well, um, you don't know what's going to happen. So, acknowledge that it's been a tough time for all of us, and and yes, you're right to have concerns, but you don't know what's going to happen. So, let's just concentrate on what I can control. Do what I can to make the best of the situation I'm in, and then we'll deal with that if it happens. Um, And and that's been a huge help. Um, in in the current sort of situation that a lot of us are in at the minute,
0: yeah, worrying about things that are beyond your control, really, isn't it? It's something we always waste time with.
1: Did these yeah. people
0: you these people that you were were rowing for were they all ones that you'd got to know through your charity through climbing out?
1: Um, a lot of them were, yes. Yeah. So a lot of them had been um, young people that had been through our programs. Um, we actually opened it up and got it it really we started to reach people from all over the world which was incredible so we had a thing through the website where people could send their stories in um so we actually ended up getting stories from all over the world coming in from people who'd been through various kinds of trauma which was oh, i i mean just incredible incredible that it had that reach but yeah the the, the bulk of people had, had been involved with the charity and been through our programmes which made it even more special really they were they were a big part of it.
0: Outdoor activity programmes and things like that is it you
1: do? Yeah we, we run five-day outdoor activity programmes um, aimed at rebuilding confidence and self-esteem um, in people who've been through a life-changing injury illness or trauma um, and I set the charity up on the back of my own injury and and the challenges that I went through um and when I was introduced to outdoor activities and I retrained as an outdoor instructor and I kind of the outdoor world played a huge part in my own recovery and so I initially set the charity up thinking I want to give other people the opportunity to adapt that how can I attitude and you know okay I've lost both my legs I can't possibly climb okay let's see how we can adapt it so that you you can still climb you know and and taking them out and just seeing how boundaries could be challenged um but as the charity developed and as I developed really um you know we learned that it wasn't just about managing that physical side um you know I look back and realize that it wasn't about managing my injury physically it was about managing my mind and how I viewed my injury so we started um bringing in a lot of personal development life coaching side of things to the five-day programs as as well Um, and that actually now has created a very unique program where we're combining the outdoor activities with the mind management stuff and and it's changing lives You, you know we've been going 10 years now and I've seen so many people that have been like flicking a switch it's been the turning point where they've been able to start moving forwards post mental or physical trauma um, which is incredible
0: it's amazing you you talked before about your identity before you had the accident as this sporty person and that a lot of dealing with your trauma was about realizing that that wasn't who you were if exactly if, if, if I haven't misquoted you yeah because now whether whether you like it or not you've again got this image as a person who goes out and achieves things Right, maybe slightly different but you know you've become this mm. as I read out at the beginning you know is this right first power row to row solo across the Atlantic you know you you have got this thing this achievement have you been able to kind of let go of that importance as who you are or do you do you need that still do you think?
1: it's who I am it, you know so I love adventure I love challenge um I still love sport um I've accepted now that I can't run you, you know but that's fine not everything has to be around running but I've learned how to go in the gym and train and, and I probably train harder than I ever did when I had two legs that work properly you know um but I I love a, a, a challenge and I love the physical side of things, so I think that's who I am. But I don't need um, it to be necessarily about being a big, you know, standing on top of a podium, having a gold medal round round my neck. It can be quite quiet and understated because I'm doing that because I choose to, because I recognise that that's what I enjoy and that's the person I want to be not because I'm having to prove anything or tick any boxes. So I have a real contentment with who I am and acceptance that I I used to look at people running and be really bitter that I couldn't do that. You know, now I look at someone running and I go, God, they're really lucky that they can. You know, I can't, but I can still paddle a boat I can still ride a bike I can still go and train hard so I'm just doing it in a different way um and that's that's a uh, I, I always say I'm now at peace with my injury and that might sound like a, a pink and fluffy thing to say but I am I you know I, I actually I'm I love my leg now and I'm kind of very grateful for the um things that it's brought me um and I love the fact that um, I I'm accepting of who I am, what I can do, what I can't do. And, and, um, you know, it's more about who you are and living by your core values. That's important than necessarily being a winner.
0: Do you still get pain from the injuries?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, my leg is 24 seven, you know, it's, um, fused with arthritis. So, some days are better than others. Sometimes I get very little pain from it. Some days, days I get a lot, um but it is how it is. It, you know, again, I'm very accepting because I kind of go. There's th- some days when I go, I'm a flaming leg, you know, and I want to get frustrated, but then I go, no, nope, it's who I am. It's just roll with it, Kel. And if I have to have a day when I'm hobbling or a day when I've got my crutches back out, if I do any big mountains now I always use my crutches because I know if I start on crutches I'll finish the day if I don't there's a fair chance I'll get halfway through my leg will get too bad so now I just use my crutches because then I know I can do it um and it might take me a bit longer and um I might be a bit slower than other people and that used to frustrate me but now I'm like no cool you crack on I just I can do it I just can't do it as fast as you anymore so um it it's a good place to be where I can accept that now instead of fight it
0: well, you've you've done amazing things, and it's and it's a very good lesson. It's very humbling for people that don't have anything wrong with their legs, who maybe could listen and think. Well, if well, if she can do that, maybe maybe I can get over. Because everyone has everyone has barriers to doing things, right? They say I can't do this. My knee hurts, or I can't do this. I'm too busy with work. I can't do this. Everyone yeah. has even people that get round them. And achieve things because you were saying you know you were looking for a way out so yeah. I think showing that weakness that you that whilst you have achieved these great things you you also felt like quitting you also felt like you know getting a note from for teacher but you know we all <laughs> have that we all have that voice it's about ignoring the voice
1: complete and I, I always think for me the most important thing about the Atlantic was I, I've seen a lot of um, other people who've done incredible amazing challenges and sometimes you know they are supreme human beings who are you know phenomenally, phenomenally, whatever the word is, um, strong both mentally and physically. Yeah, like I had so many doubts and so many fears about the Atlantic, and and I was such an idiot. Like as I as I set off out of um, the harbour, I got the front and the back of the boat mixed up you know the bow and the stern and I was like how am I supposed to row across the Atlantic when I don't even know which is the front and which is the back you know and I, I set fire to the boat on about day two because I dropped the jet boiler. and I mean I, I kind of called myself a bit of a Bridget Jones of the Atlantic because I was such a numpty out there but my point was a lot of people I think can hear some stories of what people do and go oh well yes that's inspiring but I couldn't do it like I'm I am honestly I'm like no one's special I'm I'm just as scared and as and as oh, like all those weaknesses that a lot of people have but it's about going okay I'm gonna do it anyway you've just got to have the right mindset
0: oh, well I find it very inspiring I promise you I'm never gonna row the Atlantic I may fly over <laughs> to again if things calm down but I'm definitely never gonna <laughs> do that but it's it's amazing that you've done and I think I do still find it very inspirational because you think well okay I'm not going to do something that horrendous but I can certainly get off my arse and go to the gym or you know these these yep. little things that we all need to yeah, do yeah, yeah. every day yeah. go for a bike ride anything anything to keep moving
1: completely yeah and and I always say you know find your Atlantic um, it doesn't have to be something massive like that for some people it's all relative isn't it for some people just going to the gym is a huge step forward or going out for a walk can be a huge step forward. Um, but that's, that's okay. But just how can I like look at what you can do to make that possible?
0: Yeah. Your, your Atlantic could, it could literally be a walk in the park if that's
1: yep. what's. Yeah, completely. You. And and for a lot of people who have got bigger physical or, or mental challenges, going for a walk in the park can be as challenging as as rowing the atlantic it can be huge you know so it, it is completely relevant everyone's an individual and everyone's is their own and so it's kind of not comparing yourself to others and just looking at okay what's what do i need to do um to make me happy to challenge myself to push myself to just have what i want in in life you know um and it it doesn't have to be an atlantic by any stretch good <laughs> um, well <Wow.
0: so>, yeah. <laughs> really <laughs> that, that.
1: that's letting you off the hook now <laughs>
0: thank you well Cal, calderwood it's been amazing to talk to you if people want to find out about climbing out climbing out is climbingout.org.uk
1: Yes. And, you know, all our programmes are fully funded and we really want to just reach and support people who've been through trauma. So, um, you know, if if anybody is going through anything like that, please get in touch and um, we'll see how we can help and support. Amazing,
0: Carla. Thank you so much. And great to talk to you.
1: You too. Thanks, Richard. Bye. Bye.
0: Thanks again to Kelda Wood. That website for Climbing Out, her charity is climbingout.org.uk. Healthy Beast is at Healthy Beast Podcast on Instagram. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. <music>